Well, Jonah chapter 3 is a repentance story. It's certainly not the most famous story in the book of Jonah. That would have to be the one about the big fish. Uh, But I think that chapter 3 might be my favorite chapter in the book because it is a repentance story. It's not even so much about Jonah himself as it is about the people of Nineveh. These are the real historical 8th century BC inhabitants of the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh. And at the beginning of this story, the Ninevites are living in wickedness. Back in chapter 1, we had been told that Nineveh's great iniquity had risen before the Lord. There in chapter 3, verse 8, we're told that Nineveh was a place that was characterized by violence. We know from history that the Assyrians were horribly violent and brutal. Archaeologists have actually dug up monuments that the Assyrians, remember Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, these monuments the Assyrians had built celebrated their own cruelty and how they would brutally execute their captives. So because of Nineveh's sins, because of its violence, the book of Jonah is really clear that Nineveh is headed for divine judgment. But what's amazing is that by the end of this chapter, the Ninevites have repented. They have turned around. Chapter 3, verse 10 says that they turned from their evil way. Jonah 3 is a repentance story. So this morning, whoever you are, whatever your relationship with God is like, whether or not you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Jonah 3 is highly relevant for you. And that's because repentance is something that every one of us needs very desperately. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me first just welcome you here. We're so glad that you've come to worship the Lord with us today. Because we love you, let me tell you what the Bible says is your story, the story of your life. So the Bible says that God is there. The Bible says that God made you. The Bible says that God made everything you have ever received, seen, enjoyed. God made it all. The Bible describes God as the God in whose hand is your breath. The Bible teaches that God is perfectly good. He always loves good. He always hates evil. And you and I and every member of the human race has done grievous evil in God's eyes, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. And when we face God after we die, he will judge us. And unless our story is a repentance story, one by which, by God's grace, we turn to him from sin, then the Bible is very clear that we are headed for eternal destruction. So if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, Whatever your concept of the needs in your life is, the Bible says that your biggest need is for the story of your life to become a repentance story. It's for you to turn from sin to Jesus Christ for mercy. If you're here today and you are a Christian, if by God's grace you have turned decisively in faith toward Jesus then the life that God calls you to live is now a life of continual repentance. So it's definitely important to distinguish between our 
once for all repentance at conversion, right? We turn decidedly toward God when he reaches out to us by grace and our sort of daily repentance, our daily turning back to him. But the Bible actually teaches that those two things are made up of the same ingredients. Our initial repentance at conversion and our continual repentance are made up of the same stuff. They're closely related. So one of the places we see this is in Romans chapters 6 to 8. So there, when Paul is describing how God saves Christians, how he converts them, he says that the Christian, once he is converted, he has died with Christ to sin. And he has been brought from death to life, once for all, definitively. And then, as Paul turns the corner to instruct Christians how they are now to live, he uses the same language to describe the Christian life as one in which we live out that reality. These people who have died with Christ to sin once for all at their conversion, he says that their daily life should be one of putting sin to death, thinking of themselves as dead to sin, walking out that initial repentance that God gave to them in their conversion. He says that they should present themselves as those who have been made alive by God's spirit to God for obedience. So if you've been a Christian for more than about three hours, though, you'll know that, Christ- that repentance is often a lot harder than it sounds. Right? I know at times that I have found myself less successful in turning again and again from sin to Christ in my life than I wish I would be. At times, I've, I've sort of found myself wanting to change, wanting to turn from the sin that remains in my life, even as a believer, but also kind of not wanting to do that. So this is why what we have in Jonah chapter 3 is a really precious gift. Because what I've, what I've come to believe as I've studied this passage of Scripture is that one of the primary reasons that Jonah 3 was written, is to show God's people what repentance looks like. It's to give us kind of a paradigm for repentance. So let me explain why I believe that. Jonah, the main character, and I think probably the author of this book, we're not told, but very possibly the author of the book, Jonah lived in the northern kingdom of Israel after the divided monarchy in the 8th century BC. So that's 750 years before Jesus. And we know from the book of 2 Kings that during Jonah's ministry, Israel was not seeking after God. They were living in sin. They were practicing idolatry. And God sent repeated warnings to his people through the prophets. But God's people didn't repent. And in 722 BC, Israel was taken captive by Assyria, which is the very nation that Jonah was sent to. In Nineveh. So can you see how this message about how Nineveh, the pagan city, responds to God's prophetic word calling them to repentance? Can you see how this message would have been a call to Israel saying, hey Israel, this is what I was looking for from you. This is what it should have been, what should have been your response to God's prophetic word, a response of repentance. 
So I think what we have here is, is kind of a paradigm of repentance. So certainly we can learn from what we see about the Ninevites' repentance, about what God has done in our conversion, how he has brought us decisively toward him in a once-for-all repentance. I think we can also learn quite a lot about how to continue to turn from sin in our daily lives. The book of James says that we all, Christians, we all stumble in many ways. And so the life that God calls us to live is one of continually turning from sin toward him. So as we look at Jonah chapter 3 this morning, what I want us to see is seven parts or seven ingredients, you might think of, uh, of a repentance story. So Lord willing, that'll be our outline for the rest of our time together. So the first part of a repentance story is God's word. The first part of a repentance story is God's word. Look there at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. They read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So you see there in verse 1, we're told that this is the second time God has spoken to Jonah. Right back in chapter 1, at the very beginning of book, uh, the book, Jonah was told by God to do this exact thing, to go to Nineveh. In fact, look back there with me. Uh, at the first time God spoke to Jonah, back in chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read the first two and a half verses of the book of Jonah. They say, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, and then notice how Jonah's travel is described, away from the presence of the Lord. That's how the book of Jonah starts. In chapter one, Jonah runs away from God by disobeying him, right? You know the story, he sails to Tarshish, there's a storm, he gets thrown into the sea, swallowed by the fish, vomited back on the shore. But what we need to notice is that in chapter one, Jonah is described as running away from the presence of the Lord. Well, look how God describes or the text describes God's second call to Jonah there in chapter 3. Notice how similar the wording is. Look again at chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 3. The text says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Right, do you see how his travel is described in the second commission? Right, what, is, what is the opposite of running away from God's presence? Well, according to Jonah 3, it's walking according to the word of the Lord. There's an intentional contrast between those things. So what the text is telling us is either we are walking in the light of God's word or we are running away from the presence of God. That's what Jonah 1 and Jonah 3 shows us. But Jonah is not the only one to whom God's word comes uh, in this chapter. So pick up there in the, in the middle of verse 3. It says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out yet 40 days, 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here is Jonah willing, at least outwardly, to be obedient to God, right? If you know chapter 4, you know his heart has not truly changed. But he's preaching to the Ninevites. I think what we're meant to understand by uh, that Nineveh was a three days journey in breadth is that it would have taken Jonah three days to do his job. So it was a three-day tour, or, or Jonah would have need to, needed to preach three days to reach all of the inhabitants. So Jonah goes one day into the city and he begins to proclaim God's word. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And God's word spreads like wildfire. We aren't told that Jonah even finishes his tour. This word of God, it's a confronting word, right? It's a word about judgment on Nineveh's sins and it sweeps the city. Can you see that the fact that God's word makes it to Nineveh is what changes the entire direction of Nineveh's story, right? God's word is always what gets repentance going. If God's word doesn't reach Nineveh, they don't repent and they get destroyed. But in God's mercy, his word comes to them and confronts them about their sin. That's the first step in a repentance story. And brothers and sisters, this is what happened for us, right? If you are a Christian, here's why you're a Christian. Because in God's mercy, his word came to you. His word about sin and judgment and salvation in Jesus, it reached you. That is what turned your story around. You did not change the trajectory of your story. God's word did. If there's someone in your life that you know needs to repent, someone whom you long to see come to God, pray, please pray that you would have the opportunity to speak to them God's word. No one repents unless God's word comes to them. And brothers and sisters, if we want to be people of continual repentance, people as we continually encounter the sin in our lives and in our hearts who are turning again and again from sin to God, then it would make sense that we need to be a people of continual intake of God's word. We need continually to be confronted by it to turn us back to him. First part of a repentance story is God's word. Second part of a repentance story is faith. God's word reaches Nineveh in verse 4. Look how Nineveh responds there in verse 5. The text says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. So if this were a different passage, we could think for ages together about justification by faith alone. Right? The people of Nineveh believe faith is, is key to our salvation. But in this passage, I don't think that it's talking, it's, it's emphasizing for us the doctrine of justification by faith. I think the emphasis in this passage is on the role that faith plays in Nineveh's actions. It's actually how Nineveh's faith relates to this larger story of them turning around. So here's the principle that I think we see at work in Jonah chapter 3. What you believe determines what you do. You do what you do because you believe what you believe. 
right? Why, why does this cruel, barbaric city suddenly repent literally in sackcloth and ashes? It's because what they believed changed. The week before Jonah shows up, they don't think judgment's coming. They don't think there's any consequence for their sin. Jonah shows up. He brings God's prophesied word. They believe it. And that is the engine that drives a massive revival of change in Nineveh. And brothers and sisters, this is how change works in our own lives as believers as well, right? When you and I sin, fundamentally, it's because on on some level, we are believing the false promises of sin. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter four describes sin's temptations as the lusts of deceit. Sin is always lying to you about what it delivers. It's lying to you about the consequences. So what we find when we, when we are sinning is that we believe actually that original lie that Satan told to Eve, right? We believe you, you will not surely die. Right? When I sin, when I indulge anger or pride or selfishness, what I'm doing is saying, yeah, this sin, it's, it's not really going to turn out poorly for me if I walk this way. God's word that sin leads to death isn't, isn't actually true. And so it makes sense that, that what would change us by God's grace is that we come to believe what God says about sin. That's why God's word is the first step because it comes in and it debunks the lies of sin. It says, hey, no, you're wrong. Sin does lead to death. And we're changed as we believe that. So friend, as you struggle against sin, Pray, for God to gra- pray, pray to God for grace to believe what he says about it. So find in specific terms what God's word says about the sin that you are struggling with and ask him for grace to believe it. So if, if you're struggling with pride, I struggle with pride, then ask God for grace to believe that God opposes the proud. And then he gives grace to the humble, right? Ask God for grace to believe that the proud in heart are an abomination to him. That even in his beloved children whom he sees through the righteousness of his son, the attitudes of pride in our hearts and the way those manifest in our lives and in our words, those are abominable to God, right? Pray for grace to believe that. That is what will change your fight with pride, right? If you're struggling with anger, pray for grace to believe that the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. When I give vent to my anger, I do so because in that moment, I believe that that's the right thing. I believe that if I make that snarky comment, that that will put him or her in her place and that will feel really good. In that moment, that's what I believe. And the thing that keeps me from indulging sinful anger, that that leads me to put sinful anger to death, is believing, wait, God has said, contrary to my feelings, that if I give in to this anger, it will not produce righteousness. It will not produce life, right? You see, belief drives the change. Second part of a repentance story is, is faith. 
third part of a repentance story is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Look with me at verses 5 to 8. Let me read those verses for us. They say, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. First, God's word comes to Nineveh. Second, by God's grace, they have faith in his word. And third, they're moved to godly sorrow. That's expressed in their fasting, right? They're abstaining from food and water and they're wearing of sackcloth. That was kind of rough or itchy clothing that was a sign of mourning in the ancient Near East. So one commentator writes this. He says, sackcloth is an outward and visible form of bodily repentance. A belly repents by fasting. A heart repents by being broken and contrite. A community repents by neglecting to eat and dress themselves properly. So the people of Nineveh lay aside everything that would make them comfortable and content with their lives, putting on destitution like a garment, as if to say, we are beggars who have nothing. Have mercy on us. Did you see that they even involved their animals in, in the morning, right? They put sackcloth on their cows. How strange is that, right? I think what they're saying is, God, we realize that if you judge us, not only we, but all that we have will be destroyed, right? All that we have is yours and independence on you, right? The people of Nineveh realize that their wickedness has offended God and they are deeply sorrowful from the least of them to the greatest of them, from the princes to the paupers. Did you notice the way the passage is written it draws special attention to the king of Nineveh. So there's kind of a chiasm here, right? The, the narrator speaks about his clothes, I'm sorry, his seat and then his clothes and then his clothes and then his seat again. Look, he says, he arose from his throne, his seat, removed his robe, his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, his clothes, and sat in ashes, his seat. Right? He could have said that a lot quicker. He's, he's highlighting for us. The king led his people in repentance. Any faithful Old Testament Israelite who was reading this passage would have said, Oh man, we need a king like that. We need a king who cares about the law of God, who will lead us in repentance, in response to his word. One more thing to notice about the sorrow of Nineveh, right? The sorrow is not just general sorrow, it's sorrow toward God. The king doesn't say, hey, everybody go apologize to your neighbor, right? That would have been a fine, right thing to do. But the focus is on God, right? This is what David says about his sin, which was a very, against other people's sin, murder and adultery. He says about his sin in Psalm 51, 
against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So brothers and sisters, the situation of the Ninevites is not identical to our situation as Christians. I do not think that God's will for any of us is to get uh, and wear sackcloth. But what's really clear throughout the Bible is that godly sorrow is a part of continual repentance for Christians. Right? Christianity ultimately is about eternal joy in God. It's about feasting in his presence forever. It's not about sorrow. But godly sorrow is an essential piece in the puzzle of repentance. So brothers and sisters, is there any of that in you? Right? I, don't, I don't think you have to have some sort of formal expression of godly sorrow every time you sin. But is there anything in your soul when it bumps up against the reality of your sin that is grieved that you have grieved God, your Father, the one who gave his Son for you in love? Is there any godly sorrow in your heart when you're confronted by your sin? Listen to what John Calvin says about this. This is so good. He says, I think he has profited greatly who has learned to be very much displeased with himself. Not so as to stick fast in this mire and progress no farther, but rather to hasten to God and yearn for him in order that having been engrafted into the life and death of Christ, he may give attention to continual repentance, right? That's so good. Calvin says, you know who's, who's got it right? Who's actually profited a lot is the person who has learned to be unhappy with himself, but not so that he can wallow in that and make atonement for himself, but so that that drives him to God in repentance, right? Paul said it even better in 2 Corinthians 7 because he was inspired, He said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So godly sorrow is a step along the path that doesn't end in sorrow, that ends in joy in communion with God. So brothers and sisters, it's a good and right thing to ask God for godly sorrow over our sin that in the sin that we're fighting day by day, that we would be grieved by it into repenting from it. May God grant that to us. Third part of a repentance story is godly sorrow. Fourth part of a repentance story, just very briefly, because the text is brief here, is prayer. So right there in the middle of verse eight, the king of Nineveh, he urges his subjects to call out mightily to God. We cannot repent without God's help. The thing that we need, the reason that we are repenting, is we need God's mercy. The point of repenting is to be near to God. And what better way to seek his face and his help and his mercy than to pray? So Christian, in your fight against sin, in your daily repentance, pray. Pray to God for godly sorrow. Pray for pardon for your sins, which he has given you in Jesus. Pray that you would know and experience that. Pray for help to repent. Fourth part of a repentance story is prayer. Fifth part of a repentance story is change. Fifth part of a repentance story is change. 
So look again at what the king says there in verse 8. He says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. The king of Nineveh, this guy gets it. Right? He's like, hey guys, we actually need to change what we're doing. Right? Let everyone not just be sorrowful, not just pray, but actually turn from his evil way. Right? So when God's word confronts these Ninevites who are characterized by violence, they stop being violent. Their, their behavior changes. Brothers and sisters, when we're confronted by God's word and we have faith that God's word is true and it moves us to godly sorrow and to call out to God, then the fruit of all that is actually changing, is, is turning from sin. It's to change how we're living, right? If there's no change, then repentance isn't really happening, right? If, if we think that we're going through these religious steps rightly, but there's zero change, then that's, that's not what the Bible describes as repentance. So David Pallison is an awesome Christian writer and thinker who, who really helpfully points out that this change in repentance, this looks different for different sins. So in this passage, this sin that kind of gets the spotlight is violence. We're not told any more than that, but the Ninevites are guilty, many of them, of violence. And they're told, we're told that they just stop in this this repentance. They put away the violence in their hands. By the way, can you imagine what that would have been like to walk through Nineveh the week before Jonah came and then to walk through Nineveh the week after? So David Pallison, coming back to what I was saying about him, he talks about how change looks different for different sins. So he says, you know, Biblically speaking, if you've murdered someone or if you've committed adultery, you never need to do that again. Change can look like just stopping. But he talks about, I think this is dead on the money for how the New Testament talks about our hearts. He he says for sins that are more subtle, that are closer to our hearts, he says change is much more progressive, right? For the anger that leads to violence. For the lust that leads to adultery, change in in that way is gradual. It's it's not overnight, 99% of the time. But it is real by God's grace. There is real change over time. I love what Paul says to Timothy. He doesn't say, make sure everyone knows that you are already a perfect pastor. What does he say? He says, practice these things and immerse yourselves in them so that everyone can see your progress. Fifth part of a repentance story is, is change. Sixth part of a repentance story is hope. Sixth part of a repentance story is hope. So the king of Nineveh has urged his people to fast. He's urged them to call out to God to turn from their evil. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I love the king of Nineveh. He is without a doubt my favorite 
Assyrian monarch of the 8th century BC. There's not even a close second in my mind. This guy gets it. This man who does not know the God of Abraham, who does not know the law of Moses, he dares to hope that God might be merciful to Nineveh. And listen, this is so important. Can you see, like, if the king of Nineveh, imagine that all of this happens and the king of Nineveh doesn't hope that God will be merciful to him. What does he do? He says, well, guys, better live it up. 40 more days, that's all we got, right? YOLO, right? That's not what he does because he hopes that God might forgive and help him, right? Hope is crucial for repentance. This is all over the Bible. What does the book of Hebrews say in chapter 11, verse six? It says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So listen, part of repenting toward God is believing that if you seek him, he will be gracious to you. My friend, listen, whoever you are, whatever you have done, do not believe that there is no hope for you. Don't believe that God could not have grace toward you, that you've sinned too big, that you've fallen too far. Whether you're an unbeliever who's scared to come to Christ for the first time for fear of being rejected, for a feeling of being unqualified, or whether you're a believer who has fallen into sin again and is hesitating to come to God because you feel like that is when the payment is going to happen. That's when the terrible things are going to happen, when you come to God because he's angry. Don't believe that you're too dirty to come and take a bath. Don't fail to hope in God's help and in his redemption. Right? I mentioned Psalm 51, the psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and the, the murder of Uriah. What, is, what does David express in that psalm? Yes, he, he definitely expresses total despair about his sin. David has no hope in himself in Psalm 51. But listen to what he says. He says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. God, if, if you do it, it will work, right? Wash me, God, and I will be whiter than snow. God, if you have mercy on me, I will be okay, right? David is, ho- he sinned big time. He sinned really big and he's hoping in God. That is key to repentance. This is, this is something so crazy that I would not say it unless it were in the Bible. The Bible teaches that people who really understand how gracious God is and who dare to hope in his grace, those are not the people who run into license. Those are the people who run to God. Sixth part of a repentance story is hope because the seventh part of a repentance story is mercy. Right? God started this chapter out by sending his gracious word to Nineveh and God finishes the chapter there in verse 10. Let me read it. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Listen, I can tell you, whoever you are, whatever you've done with divine authority today, that if you will repent, you will receive mercy. For all of eternity, God will not treat you as your sins deserve, as he says in Psalm 103. Listen, when we sin, we are swiping a credit card that we cannot pay off. We are flaunting the law in the sight of the judge. We are, Romans 2 says, heaping up God's anger for the day of judgment if we are outside of Christ. But the message of Jonah 3 is that God shows mercy to the repentant. Let me just be really clear about this. That does not mean that God gives repentant people what they have earned by repenting. Right? He doesn't give them merit. He gives them mercy. He gives them better than what they deserve. So I cannot rack up a multi-million dollar credit card debt and then call Visa and say to them, listen, Visa, I am so sorry. Like I am deeply sorry. I'm wearing sackcloth. I put sackcloth on my neighbor's dog. I mean, I'm just, I have done wrong, right? I, I've, I'm, I'm enrolling in you know, Financial Peace University, I'm going to turn my act around. I'm going to stop spending like I've been spending. Please help. Won't, won't you cancel my debt? Right? Visa is not going to do that. They're going to say, sounds good. Glad you've gotten your life in order. Call us when you have the money. Until then, we'll charge interest. In order for them to cancel my debt, they would have to extend mercy. Right? The, the story of Jonah 3 is not that the Ninevites were doing bad stuff and so they deserved bad stuff and then they did good stuff and then they started deserving good stuff. It's that God had mercy on people who deserved a lot of bad stuff from him. Right? Repentance stories are happy endings because they end in mercy, not merit. So that raises the question, right? If we can't earn mercy... By repenting, how do we know that God is going to show mercy if we come to him? Right? If you're a Christian and you have sinned again, how can you know that God will again show mercy to you if you come to him? If you're not a Christian, how can you know that if you come to Jesus Christ, he will in no wise cast you out? Well, the reason that we know that God will show you mercy is because the purpose of Jonah 3 is not only to teach us about repentance. The purpose of Jonah 3 is to point us to Jesus Christ. Because 800 years after the prophet Jonah, who descended into the sea of death and was raised by God's salvation to subsequently preach repentance to sinners, 800 years after that prophet, and 800 years after the king of Nineveh got up off his throne and removed his robe and clothed himself with sackcloth and sat in the ashes in order to turn away the sin of the wrath of God against the sin of his people— God gave to his people a greater prophet and a greater king and a great high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the prophet sent to preach 
repentance. Right? Matthew chapter 12, 41. Jesus speaking, he says, The men of Nineveh, these people that we're talking about, they will rise up at the judgment with this generation of Israelites who didn't believe in Jesus. And the men of Nineveh will condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And listen to this. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Can you imagine telling that to a Ninevite? He would have been like, what's greater than Jonah? The preaching of Jonah saved a massive global city from destruction by divine judgment. Who has a better message than that? Friend, Jesus has a message of eternal mercy from eternal destruction. Something greater than Jonah, my friends, is here. But listen, Jesus is not just a prophet, right? Just as any faithful Jew would have read this account and longed for a king who would take sin and holiness and God's judgment and repentance as seriously as this pagan king did, Jesus is that king, right? In unimaginable love, in supreme seriousness about the holiness of God against sin, the Son of God rose from his heavenly throne. He removed from himself the honor that was his due as the eternal Son of God. And he clothed himself not only with human flesh, but with the sin and the shame and the guilt of God's people. And he sat in the ashes of death under the judgment of God so that everyone who trusts in him might receive mercy, right? Repentance stories don't end well because we fix our problems by repenting. Repentance stories end well because the king deals with our sins. Brothers and sisters, listen, if you belong to Jesus, the mercy of God has been obtained for you by his work. Repentance is going and getting it, right? To be clear, there is no, rep- no forgiveness without repentance, right? You must repent. If there's, if there's no repentance in someone's life, that person is not a Christian. They need to come to Jesus for the first time. But God's mercy, you have to understand, is not a light at the end of a long tunnel that we reach by repenting. At the end of our repentance, right, we finally merit the mercy of God. No, 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 no. The gospel is not that God forgives us on the basis of our repentance. The gospel is that God forgives the the repentant on the basis of Christ's work on the priest king who has dealt with your sins. Unbeliever, won't you come to this God a God who is this full of mercy. Christian, won't you keep coming to this God day by day as you fight against the sin that continues to fight against us? As Paul says in Romans chapter two, won't we let God's kindness lead us to repentance? What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy.
is more. Let's pray.